Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. Coco Chanel really needs no introduction, and yet it is precisely those people who we think we already know everything about whose lives can be full of unexpectedly rich and unexplored periods. In her new biography, Chanel and Intimate Life, biographer Lisa Cheney provides a provocative portrait of a woman we already think we know, proving we maybe don't. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, where to begin? Um, I suppose maybe it's, maybe it's I, I'm sure every writer will have some story that's rather similar. When I was very small, I, I had a, a, a mini epiphany and knew that I wanted to be a writer. It took me a long time to actually do it. I think um, fear of failing. I, 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 I didn't it. I didn't start writing when I was young because I think I was fearful of not being good enough, not being good enough at it. But I, I, I grew up in a sort of, I don't know, mixed with sort of intellectual bohemian background where reading and writing was just sort of it, it was there was no pressure. That was just what was going on around you all the time. And I, I was a mad voracious reader. I'm sure well, I presume most writers were, but. But I, um, I think when I was quite young-ish, I, I we, we'd lived all around the world, and then when we came to England, I was put in this very strict, very old-fashioned. I, I can now see it in some, some ways very good school, but I, um, I, I think I began to react again then, then because I mean, we'd come from the tropics where we hadn't been to school for two and a half years. It was there that I realised sitting up a large mangrove tree, looking out over the Pacific Ocean, reading a book stolen from my father's library, a grown-up book, that I realised I wanted to be a writer. And I think coming to London made me feel terribly confined. So I think I started to react, and for that time I was 16, I was expelled from school and became a dropout and was delighted that I was um, not acceptable. And then I think over a period of a few years, I, I got terribly bored and sort of dropped back in and went to college and really began to realize that some, in some kind of focused level, living all sorts of things, doing, having a rather wacky life in many ways, gradually, gradually getting to the point where I did actually start writing. I, I taught in university for quite a long time, but I knew... It came to the point where I, was, I should really have been writing a terribly serious, worthy academic book. <laughs> and I knew I just wanted to reach more people. Um, not that I didn't think academia is very worthwhile, I do, but I, I wanted to reach more people. I wanted to tell stories to more people. And I sort of, I, I didn't really intend becoming a biographer. It just it, it sort of happened, a series of circumstances, and people started asking me, was I writing the biography of the woman I wrote my first biography of. And I kept saying, oh, no, 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 I couldn't do that, I couldn't do that. And then I started thinking, oh, my goodness, maybe I could. And I did. <laughs> and it did really well. But, it, I mean, each writer has, in some ways, a totally different journey, but in other ways, they, 
I don't know, there's lots of similarities, I think, aren't there, between, as you know, I'm obsessed with words. They, they all have almost a physical effect on me. Um, I, I care very much about the way I write. I very much want the reader to be in the world that I'm creating. I'm very conscious of using not only the tools of the historian, but the, no- the tools of the novelist. If I can't make a reader want to turn the page, I regard it as a failure. I was very, I was very touched, I was very complimented when a reviewer once said her book reads like a novel. Um, but that's a very long answer to your simple question. <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. Um, so what do you think are the strengths of writing in biography as a genre? What's driven, driven you to that exactly? I think it is a particular kind of fascination with people, and uh, again, I think I I think I really do believe that you can't really write biography when you're very young. I think you have to have had uh, a fair amount of life experience, and a lot of people would say that about novelists. I don't think it's always the case, but I think with a biographer, you 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 have to have acquired, I think. Some kind of emotional imagination, um, and I think in this certain way you only acquire that with age, with time, with life, with experience. And because, because for me, the good biographer is someone who finds a person and then does their utmost to try and understand that person, and then tries for the reader to to put that person into the context that they came from. In other words, to, I suppose, use modern journalese, to embed them in the time from which they came so that the reader understands why you are saying, you, the writer, are saying these people were very important. I only like to write about people who, I feel when they left the world, they left it really rather a different place from the one that they, you know, when they came into it. Um, they had an effect. I mean, the biography I wrote before this, Chanel, was J.M. Barry, the man that wrote Peter Pan. Um, and I I think there's this, there's this dialogue that comes to be this dialogue between you and your subject. I mean, you know, you, I wish I didn't, but after a time you live, eat, sleep, dream them. You know, when you wake up in the middle of the night, it's awful, actually, but it is certainly for the last year or so while I'm writing, it is literally, it's not what am I thinking about when you wake up in the night, they're just they're there. It is that it, you are thinking it. And I I suppose I do go into some kind of a zone that is just, it, I, I always say they're going on slightly in the back of your mind all the time, as I think is the case for any writer when they're writing a book. But, but because it's this slightly strange thing being a biographer, and I'm a quite dynamic personality, and yet, in a weird way, sometimes you think, God, I'm like, I'm like a ghost. It's sort, of, it's sort of, to be a really good biographer, in a funny way, you ought not to exist. Of course, you do exist because you're <laughs> making decisions all the time. How do I present this person? I must be honest. I must have integrity. I have all this extraordinary information. If I chose to, I could extraordinarily manipulate the information so that my reader... I know I could make my reader think that about this person, but your that I think I like about biography that for me the good biographer is someone with great integrity because there is this constant temptation to uh, 
look at yourself and say, no, come on, the truth, the truth, whatever that is, the truth of, of this person is what you're trying to get at. But I not, not in a clinical way, I want very much for the reader to understand the mystery of what it is to be a human being. I, I, I love that. I love that in a way that someone will close my book and say, I still don't quite understand her, but maybe like you, Lisa, I can now empathize with her or I understand something of her because I don't think we ever 100% understand another human being, do you? The older I get, the more modest I feel about that. <laughs> That's kind of promising, though. Like, you don't, people should be so complex that they really can't be understood in one book. That's kind of, it's sad that we think that they could be. Yes, I agree. And I think that's why um, one's very conscious that, in a funny way, biography is apparently a very conventional genre. I mean, a lot of people, I think it's a great shame, but a lot of people, I think, mistakenly see it like that. And it's not because at its best, it's just the same as a novel in that it is describing the wonderful remarkableness of what it is to be human and the strangeness of what it is to be human. And if I can get that across about another human being in the particular way in which they were, the particular way they made the world differently, the particular way they lived their life and create. I'm very interested in creative people, makers, I suppose. And if I can get that across, if I can get the person to think, wow, like I do when I'm So before the interview, we were actually talking about process a little bit and how we liked when we talked to people, we say that, oh, yes, I, I gathered all of my papers and then I sat down and I wrote for three months and I was done. But actually that the writing of biographies is really messy kind of ordeal. Can you talk a bit about your process? That's very good. I really like the word ordeal. I couldn't <laughs> identify more strongly. I think when I finish, I think I feel, maybe everyone does when they finish, but I feel brain dead at the end, actually, a month. Afterwards, because it is an ordeal. I realised with this one, you know, my third big book, and I realised not that far into it. My goodness, this is like a marathon. <laughs> this is like a marathon, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally, psychically. But I, I think I'm pretty crap at um, actually kind of protecting myself or looking after myself in the process. Actually, I've become like some really ragged, nutty old artist. <laughs> kind of clinical way 
So there's all these different things you're bringing to bear. That's what I really like about biography. It's your, it's your intellect, it's your intuition, it's your integrity, it's your sense of artistry, it's your love of words, it's your interest and love of people, it's your ability to be, ability to be mature about the subject you're, you're treating of. It's your, I think, in the end, I choose subjects whom I have a great deal of respect I don't necessarily like them, but I think that they were remarkable. And I think at the end, you usually halfway-ish through my dealing with the person, I want very, very much to feel that they might usually, most people hate the idea of a biography being written about them, but I would be very, very chuffed. I'd be very pleased if I knew that they'd actually secretly been a bit pleased with it. <laughs> with what I'd written about them. Um, and I'm not, in a, I'm, I'm not a hagiographer, God. I, you know, I, 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 I am very concerned to, to find out things about someone that aren't necessarily very nice. Um, but, yeah, yeah. So what drew you to Chanel as a subject? What made me choose her? Well, I, it was actually my marvellous agent's idea. It's the first time I've been given an idea by someone else. And I was very rude at the beginning. <laughs> Actually, she's pointed at my age. She said, right, fine. And I, I said, oh, goodness, I, mean, I don't know about fashion designer. I mean, I love clothes and, and I'm fascinated by them. But I just, and anyway, I, I, I don't actually like her clothes. And, and uh, my agent said, right, okay. And then I went away and I started thinking about it because Claire always comes up with you know, interesting thoughts. And I started looking up Chanel. And very quickly, I realized, not, I think, by the route that perhaps some people would have come to her, I, I taught history of art and design for a long time in university. And um, one of the main periods I taught and was fascinated by was you know, what's called the modern period. So it's the 19th century into the 20th century. And so I, I, when I realized that Chanel had not only known, but been the lover of and amused to a great number of the people whom I regard as the founders of modern art, what we now call modernism, I was, I was flabbergasted. I, just, I, did, I had not known this. But I knew a lot about all these people, Diaghilev, Stravinsky, Picasso, um, Jean Cocteau. I mean, you, know, you can just go on and on and on. And I could not believe that this woman, uh, just, just a fashion designer, had actually been in such intimate contact with all these people. And when I realized that, I ran up my agent and I said, I really want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a huge motivation for me to actually try, because I don't think any biographer has ever done that for her before. Mm-hmm. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to show that she's a major cultural figure. Um, and it was through her connection with these people that I realized how much she was that. And if I, I've, I've been written to by a number of people, which is always very touching when people take the trouble to do that. And a few have actually said, I, I, like me, you know, I had no idea she had connection with all these fascinating artists early in the 20th century. You've made, you've made her seem so much more interesting. And I'm very pleased because that's what I thought about her myself. Right. So what sources were most helpful to you? Sorry? Uh, what sources were most helpful to you? What sources? 
an elder company were very helpful. Um, you, you can't write a book about someone like that without having their backing. Um, although I think they were, they were very helpful. Um, but I think they were also ambivalent because they were frightened what I might discover. Because I was quite clear at the beginning, you know, if I discover things about her which might be uncomfortable, I'm afraid I'm not a biographer that's noted for covering things up. I'll have to put them down. But they were decent enough to slightly, reluctantly accept that. And uh, every time I went to Paris, they kindly... I, I had an office in one of the main Chanel buildings. And um, initially, it was very helpful. Um, there is this thing that they call that archive. It's a slight misuse of the word archive in a way, because I think archive really means something with what you call primary source, meaning unpublished material. What it is, is it saves you a lot of time. It's every published thing that has ever been published on Chanel. I have it all collected in this room, all massive files. And so every magazine article, every, you know, lots of, sort of going back right early, all the photographs in the different magazines, a lot of her, of her work, etc., etc. And that was brilliant because I could have done that elsewhere, but it would have meant going to this, that, and the other library, both in France and in England, and it would have been much, much more time-consuming. But as to original material, they have almost nothing. Um, it, it always gets talked about as their archive, but it's... They have a handful of letters, partly because, in fairness to them, they don't exist. She wrote very, very few letters. Um, and they have a, a brilliant database of photographs, thousands and thousands, of anything to do with her. But many of them they don't own the copyright for, but they have them in this in this database. Uh, but that so that's very helpful. But then that that was an obvious starting point. Well, I read all the everything that has ever been written on her, of course. And I had I mean you you know you start questions come up as you start reading other people's books. And so I went to Paris the first couple of times with some of these questions in my mind, and then just waded my way through this material. And then you know. More, the more you know, more questions come up. And I, um, this wonderful woman, whom they call their archivist, who is actually, she's a delightful, Marie Cajanti, delightful, highly intelligent, sensitive woman. Um, she did point me in the direction of a couple of people, and that was very helpful. But on the whole, I found people just by you work something out, and you think, ah, now that person was connected to, I wonder if their daughter, grandson, great-great-grandson, etc., is still alive. And then you might be lucky enough to find them. One of the major, one I like to feel was one of my major coups was, I actually have it as the, um, as the epigraph of the book. It says, Kate all said, remember that you're a woman all too often. I forgot that. That's Chanel saying that. I realized that her English lover, this extraordinary man, um, before and during the First World War, Arthur Capel, Capel, the French call him, and his nickname is Boy, she herself said, without him I would have been nothing. He was my father, my brother, my sister, my mother. But she didn't just mean financially. He did happen to be her first backer, but she didn't mean that. Um, and I thought, no biographer has ever yet picked up on this fantastically important statement. So 
all the previous biographies had trotted out the same old stuff about this mysterious, enigmatic man, very rich, very handsome, etc., etc., dead by 1919, a very important dinner. But that was it. And I started looking for him, for instance, and all the previous biographies had got it wrong where he went to school. And, you know, once you... Once you have one lead that's wrong, you you can come up against the brick wall. So once I started to find out more, and the school was wrong, there was a stop. But I I know, I know if, he was a Catholic, and I know a fair amount about the history of Catholicism, and I knew that it sounded wrong where he went to senior school. So I looked up another couple of schools, and it turned out that actually he went to Stonyhurst here in the north of England. And I just I was so excited that I'd worked out that was where he went. I just picked up the phone and to the archivist, and he was brilliant. I don't think he'd ever been run up and spoken to about, you know, a fashion designer called Coco Chanel. Could you put a connection with one of your old boys from the end of the 19th century? He was brilliant. And he found this amazing little thumbnail autobiographical piece that Arthur Cable had had to write about himself. And he sent it to me. It says, marvellous how a photograph in my computer, of in his own hand. And it was it was only three lines, and it was, ah, oh, talking about it, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. <laughs> it said where he was born, it said that his mother was French, it said where he went to primary school, it said, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so many things came out of that, including the whole, I mean, the whole early, up to sort of the central part of the book is, is based on this extraordinary love affair with this man. And... I found out things that had never been found out. I mean, I know more about him now than his own family does. <laughs> um, but he, that, you just, I think, I, you know, when I give talks now, I think this time around I've realized I sort of say, well, if I never get another commission, maybe I'll become a detective. I think I'm not bad at, it's that funny mixture, isn't it, of knowledge, intuition, and, um, the huge, dogged determination, like a terrier worrying away at a bone. And then something comes to you in the middle of the night, doesn't it? And you just, you've understood something. And then you can go on to the next lead. So it was a mixture of that, like that was a lot of, of, of looking in libraries. And But then I did eventually, for instance, I found his grandson, um, I found his grandson and his grandson-in-law. And... They were brilliant. They were absolutely brilliant. And they gave me this marvellous package. They gave me the first time I met them. And we were all so moved by meeting each other. But they gave me this package of letters which had been hidden in a secret book for about 80 years. And they were letters um, from him to the woman he married instead of Chanel. And it was just amazing. With these letters, I was able to piece together all sorts of things about his relationship with Chanel because he talks, he mentions this other woman, etc., etc. So it was, it was marvellous doing that. You know, you're building up a picture like like a detective. Mm-hmm. Um, but it that that's that's just one aspect of of the research that I did. I I, I like when you know, when you read another person's biography. I always, I always begin by thinking, oh my goodness, I, 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 there's nothing I can contribute, it's all been said. And then you sort of put down the book and you maybe read it again or maybe, and it just thoughts start happening. So the first biography, for instance, said Mont Charles Roux, uh, who's buried around behind Chanel's back while she was still alive. And in fact, 
Chanel loathed her. She was in a tour of Vogue. Meaningly, she's still alive. Um, and Chanel, when Chanel heard, this is very late on in Chanel's life, that Charles was writing her biography, she faced her with it one day and she just, she screamed at her. And she just said, why did you not come to me yourself? How dishonored, creeping around behind my back. <laughs> but anyway, she published it as soon as Chanel died. But there was lots missing. Mm-hmm. Lots missing. And I began by wanting to find out about filling in some of the gaps. And then the whole story just sort of mushroomed, really. <laughs> So I have, this is one last technical question, which I'm working on a book about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. So names are really, really important to me. Um, um, and in the book, you ref, you do not refer to her as Coco or as Chanel. You refer to her as Gabrielle. What yes. was the reason for this? I'm sure there had yes, to be some sort of thought process behind that's it. That's a nice question. I'm glad you asked it because it's actually really important to me. Um, I put in, uh, uh, sadly, as a proper, in inverted commas, biographer, I'm, I'm never allowed loads of photographs. I mean, you know, more picture book type books have lots of photographs, but I only usually get two two spreads of eight pages each. So it's, it's not it's not a matter of of what photographs do I have. It's oh, which ones I leave out. But one I was absolutely determined to have is is a very early photograph of her. Um, it's 1913, and it's standing outside her first shop um, with her. This, my dear close relation who's almost like a, um, a sister to her. She's actually a cousin, but but anyway, and she was her aunt actually. But um, and they're standing outside the shop, and she's got this marvelous, you know, classic early Chanel clothes on that she's wearing. And behind her, you can see the awning to the shop, and written in beautiful script, it says Gabrielle Chanel. And this confirmed completely my thoughts, which were, I was trying to write a book about an icon, Coco Chanel. And I wanted to find the real woman behind the icon. She was christened Gabrielle, and she chose very much in the earlier part of her life to call herself Gabrielle. So it seemed completely, not just appropriate to me, it seemed terribly important that that's what I should call her, because I thought that was the real her, the Coco was the professional name that became part of the iconic image. And, you know, we all know what that icon is, Coco Chanel, but I wanted to find who the real person was. So our interviews usually move chronologically through the subject's life, but I wanted to start with you and to kind of use your book as a talking point for the larger issue of of controversy and biography and what it's like as a biographer to have written a controversial book. So when this, uh, when this book came out, it was considered fairly controversial. Can you discuss a bit of the controversy that surrounded it, um, and what it was like also as a biographer to have it released in, under that environment? Um, hell. <laughs> <laughs> because because you're, you're kind of, it's not regarded as correct to sort of stand up on a soapbox and scream it. Various journalists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is what you actually feel like doing. Um, I, I, one of the major issues when the book actually came out, it was of course very, very irritating. Um, there's an, an elderly American guy who was a journalist um, who brought out a book uh, about Chanel, and basically his thesis, his, his only thesis really, is that she was a spy for the Nazis in the Second World War. Um, 
I actually, I happen to think that he's completely mistaken. There were two occasions when we could have been interviewed together, and first of all, I said yes, and then I actually backed off because I, I thought I'd be so rude. I didn't want to do that. Um, I think, uh, I, I think his book is a travesty. Actually, um, uh, I say in my book, I'm at some pains to say that I think that Chanel's behaviour in the Second World was absolutely reprehensible. She was a collaborator. Um, I, uh, it was very annoying for me because uh, I was definitely the first person who discovered that he was, that her lover was working for the Nazis as a spy. But unfortunately, this man's book very intentionally came out about six weeks before mine. So although I know I discovered it first, it looked like he had. But um, he he was determined that she herself was a spy. And the, the, what he based the original thought on was that she had what's called an Abwehr number, the Abwehr being you know, the Ministry of Information for the Nazis. But it's extraordinary, it's extraordinarily ahistorical because thousands of people had Abwehr numbers. You, you know, to, to do anything in France during the war, you had to have a license. And you had to have a license from the Nazis who your your overseers, your rulers. You had to have a license to be a teacher, to be to, to have any job, to do anything. Um, so it, 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 it irritated me intensely his assumption that because she had you know, his, because she had a number that she must she was she was a spy. I I I object deeply to the way of writing, which is that you know guilt by association. Um, you set up a premise, and you know already what you're going to have as your answer because you have decided beforehand. Um, all sorts of things are said, but in the back of the book, there are not even any footnotes. There's no proper referencing to what is to the argument that is being put forward. Sadly, lots of journalists, I think, either didn't even read the book or read the book, and it's intentionally very sensational. Mm-hmm. Um, and they just completely accepted it because, of course, it's a very, very touchy issue if you are not only an anti-Semite, and there's no question she was, anti-Semitic but then so and this is not in any way I'm no way I'm an apologist for Chanel but so were many many people across Europe who were not Nazis you know, mild anti-Semitism was I mean it was rife every European country and anyone that says otherwise is just a jolly big liar but we we there's sort of lots there's a kind of knee-jerk reaction um, and I, I have a sort of almost like a little essay in the in the book where I'm talking about her collaborating, collaborating. I say by living with somebody who I mean she lived in the Ritz. The Ritz was taken over by the Nazis during the war. How bad is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't um, look good. <laughs> it does not look good exactly. And I think her behaviour was reprehensible. And I say that what I am absolutely not convinced by, and I think I'm probably the only person around at the moment who's looked at the same documents as this other man. I'm not convinced, I'm absolutely not convinced by the argument. He does not know her. He, he took one aspect of her life, and from that he makes enormous judgments about her, which I do personally do not feel that there is anything like enough proper historical evidence given for them. I feel I really know her. Mm-hmm. And on my um, accounting... I absolutely do not believe that she personally spied for the Nazis. As I as I said, that does not mean that I don't think her behaviour was reprehensible. It wasn't for nothing that she 
why. It means that she knew damn well that she behaved pretty damn badly. But I, I, I connect her, for instance, to her sort of friend Colette, another French monstre sacre, as they like to call him. I know that sacred monster. Um, well, Colette, you know, Colette uh, was married to a Jew, um, and yet wrote for one of the most perniciously anti-Semitic uh, Jewish um, uh, periodicals for part of the war. Um, and when she was uh, questioned about this, she said, well, I had to make money. He couldn't make any money. But, you know, <laughs> you, you sort of, there are lots of questions you can ask about that. And so I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not, interested in justifying Colette, I'm not interested in justifying Chanel, but there are levels, what I say in my argument is there are levels of collaboration and that final premise on which the whole of Vaughan's book is based, that she was a spy, I deeply object to I think it is scandalous, you know, you can't defame the dead can you, so he can say all these appalling things and she can't stand up and <sighs> defend herself so it's very, very hard for me to say any of this without without people, if they're not listening very carefully, not thinking that I'm an apologist for her, and not. She was a very flawed person. And what I say was, like Colette, I think she was a survivor. She was going to damn well survive the war. And that's different from saying, I'm actually going to become a traitor to my country by actually giving information to the enemy. Um, I think I better stop now because I could go on all day about this particular <laughs> No, no, no. I mean, if it's any consolation as a reader, that is the, the section of the book that really stuck with me. I didn't know much about France during the occupation. I'd read about Edith Piaf, but most of the stories of people I'd read about then were from about the resistance. And so I got this impression that the resistance was this huge thing that everybody was a part of. And so it was just eye-opening to read those passages in your book and oh, see all of the, the, oh, the moral shades of gray and all of it. No, it was just extraordinary. I immediately ordered three other books about France during the occupation because I had to find out because I knew nothing. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Well, really I'm classic. really very, very gratified that, that they were saying that. It's it, it, it really made my day because it means that so here is a reader who's read my book with care because I, I, I slightly dreaded once I discovered that that von Dinklager, her German lover, was. I don't know if he was ever a paid-up Nazi. It doesn't matter. He spied for them, and he was the most ghastly, um, because so utterly plausible uh, character. <laughs> but uh, I tried. I, once I discovered that, which was fairly early on, all these extraordinary number of documents in Switzerland and France that I had to wade my way through, etc., etc., I was slightly dreading coming to that part of the book where I had to write this down and how could I do it in such a way that I could try and convince the reader what I've obviously convinced you of. And I'm so glad that you took it the way I wanted, I hoped, the reader would take it, which is, I think I say at some point, don't I, it, it, it's not something which can be described. Collaboration is not black and white. Right. Uh, sadly, there are many areas of grey, and if you think of a spectrum, and you put Colette and Chanel on the spectrum, they're very definitely on the side of collaboration, as far as I'm concerned, or certainly Chanel is. But, that is not the same as being a spy, and so it does make me, it makes me very angry and sad that so many contemporary journalists and critics have 
accepted what this man has said. I think there was, a, I think it was the LA Times or maybe I think it was the New York Times. They were some very good American newspaper. I was so pleased they they sort of said things like you know, rather scandalously, which I'm really not sure about how he's come about using his material because uh, it, it they're very serious things they're talking about, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, not just uh, well, yeah. Actually, Chanel wore red on that day. No, actually, I think she wore pink. I mean. <laughs> Um, as you can hear, I feel very passionately about it. Why? Because I think that this is something that biography can really do, is that when I read those passages, it made me wonder, what, what, you know, you want to judge them and be like, oh, they collaborated, that's dreadful, which it's it's not great, obviously, but then if I were in that situation, I don't know what I would do. Like, you have very to put yourself honest. in the sub. You want to condemn the subject, but then as very a writer honest. and then as a human being, you yep. project yourself you. into it, and there's just no way. Yes, that's very honest of you, and I think that's exactly what I felt. You keep on looking into yourself while you're writing about this person, and you, you, you think, you know, as we know, so many French people, they had to survive. They had to, put, they had to feed their children. They had to feed their wives. They had, you know, and that doesn't... Yeah, there comes a point where you do think, no, sorry, I, I think what you did there really was, there's just no question it was wicked. But there's an awful lot before you get to that stage, isn't there? And as you say, what would one do oneself? Right. How wicked would we be? Mm. But that doesn't make us spy. Mm. Quite different, isn't it? Trying mm. to survive and handing over material to the enemy, I think. Right. Mm. So as biographers, we spend a lot of time with the subjects we're writing about. Tell me about it. <laughs> I know, I know. Did you like <laughs> Chanel? How was it spending a lot of time with her? Did I like her? I don't think I liked her, mm. but I came to feel huge sympathy for her. I I sort of wanted to put my arms around her in the last part of her life and, and sort of give her a hug and, and sort of say, oh, God, you poor thing, you poor thing. You are so much your own worst enemy with this terrible, hard carapace that you've mm. built up around you and you've isolated yourself more and more as a result and become unkinder and unkinder to other people because actually you need so much kindness yourself and don't know how to ask for it and etc etc so I I I realize there's a difference between sympathy feeling sympathy for someone and liking them if I'd been I don't I don't know you know if I'd actually known her I might have liked her despite everything but I I think I've come to realize it it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you don't like a subject. What really matters is you, if you, even through their wickedness, if you can try and have this thing that I call emotional imagination, and if you can empathize and or sympathize with them, and I certainly sympathize with her, definitely. I feel terribly sad for her. Sad. <laughs> and I hope that comes across. I hope it comes across that there was this... Extraordinary little girl who became this extraordinary woman, but was so sad. It's in her eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, my my editor wanted one of the more classic, glam, iconic photographs for the cover of the book, and um, uh, I really, really did not want one of those photographs because, again, you know, my book was trying to get behind the iconic image, and she. She said, well, well, what do you want then? Which which one? And uh, I had it had it with me, and I immediately showed her that one, the one that's on the cover, mm-hmm. because I think that captures those two elements of her. It is extraordinarily glamorous. And yet, at the same time, if you look carefully, 
you can see the mystery of the woman and the sadness in her eyes. And I love that that conflict, that mixture, that mm-hmm. contradiction. Um, unfortunate that we're segueing into this question from sadness, um, but it's yeah. fascinating to read the biography of an unmarried childless woman. I actually just um, a couple months ago read about Julia Child who married late, and, but just these unconventional lives are really interesting to read about because it's still a rather shocking series of choices to, to be unmarried and to be childless. Mm. Uh, so how shocking was this and revolutionary and outside the conventions of her day was Chanel's life in this context? Uh well, in, in the general context, um, I, I'm at pains to try and show that she herself, her whole life, was extraordinarily um, avant-garde, um, ahead of its time, radical, new. Um, I mean, she, she, she was one of the very first women who personified in herself, personified the notion, the idea of what it was to be a new woman. She's, and, 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 I mean, I think some people perhaps uh, might find, might have found my book disappointing in that it's not really a book for fashionistas because the clothes are very important. They're obviously crucial. But I, I say, she said herself in her own way, that her clothes were simply, these clothes were simply a reflection of her and the modern, new, original life that she was living. And that I didn't understand before I really started to look at her and before I started to look in great depth at contemporary clothes and to look at hers and compare and compare them and see the subtle way in which they were different and then try, as one has to do, you not when you step back in time, um, to imagine what it was like for contemporaries to look at her clothes and look at her, which is partly why I, you know, I do a huge amount of reading around the subject, and then I, around by subject, I mean the person, and why I try very, very hard to create the cultural happenings, the milieu in which they existed for my reader, so that my reader can do like I do and go, wow. That really was extraordinary because, you know, we all know women chopped off their hair. We all knew women started wearing dresses that were just below the knee or even on the knee. We all know that. There's nothing kind of, oh, wow about that for us. But if I can try and paint the picture and show you how it happened and show you the ways in which she really was one of the first, then that's the way that, that, that I'm showing you that she was. I mean, really, a couple of handfuls of women, I think, who were living this modern life. And part of that um, came to be not marrying and not having children. You know, it was, uh, as you know, it was regarded as a huge failure not to marry and uh, a, a really rather bad mark on you not to have there's a part of her actually that <clears throat> felt that herself, but another part of her, through all sorts of circumstances, I think she was actually unable to have children. I think she had um, an abortion very early on, and I think it was probably um, done very badly, and then she couldn't have children. I actually, it's a rather bad thing to say about her, but I actually think she would have been the most appalling mother. <laughs> I think she would have desperately tried not to be, but I think she is such a marvellous, powerful human.
she would have probably smothered them in love. <laughs> but that whole thing about, I mean, she, it happened with all her love affairs. She couldn't be, she couldn't be, she didn't, she found power very problematic, I think. I think she found equality very problematic, is perhaps a better way of putting it. I don't think she knew how to be equal. She either had to be boss or under someone, and I don't mean that metaphorically. Um, so initially in a love affair, I think she came, she was terribly classically French and obviously feminine and all these kinds of things. But then the real her, after a time, started coming to the fore, and I think she was nearly bursting with frustration. She couldn't, she couldn't play the part. And sadly for her, when one thinks back to the 20s and 30s and even into the 40s, or probably well beyond as well, but that was still really expected of you. And so it was very hard. It must have been so hard for a woman, a woman then who was so genuinely powerful and different. And again, I go back to my quote at the beginning. Capel said, remember that you're a woman. And she says, all too often I forgot that. <laughs> Which is a marvelous mm-hmm. pair of statements. Uh, and I think it was an, a lifelong battle. And sadly, I think she suffered as a result of it. I think it's partly why she became a lonely old woman. She didn't have a partner. She didn't have children. And I think it's interesting. It's 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 sort of it's the problem for twentieth century women, really. How on earth do we be working women? In her case, a very extraordinary working woman, and unite our private life, unite our emotional life with that public mm-hmm. working thing. And I think I I don't talk about it a huge amount in the book because it's it's sort of meant to be just implicit in so much that I describe about her. I think she's tragic in a way. She's a tragic example of how that problem is something that women still struggle with, I think, do we not? <laughs> you know, whether one marries, whether one doesn't marry, whether one has children, whether one doesn't have children, all these things and how you join them up to having the scope to have a working life as well. Mm-hmm. So again, typically, Chanel is full of contradictions there, and in some ways she would have seen herself as a failure for not marrying and having children, but at another level, up, uh, another deep part of her, I don't think, needed it. Um, but she's full of contradiction, like, like most of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and flaws, uh, very deeply flawed, deeply flawed. Which always makes for a really good biographical subject. It does. It does. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that people who have people who are wonderful and generous and kind and decent and have amazingly good lives, sadly, <laughs> probably make the best biography. It's a great shame. It is unfortunate. <laughs> I'd really like to write about a really, really nice, decent, good, kind person. But I think an awful lot of people would be snoring after about chapter two. <laughs> it would be a much shorter book, probably. It would, it would. Yes, it's not just like a pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Chanel and Intimate Life. Any idea who you're going to be writing about next? I think I just do, actually. 
I think I do. And I daren't say it. It'll have to come back to me when I've signed a contract. I daren't say it because, as you know, being a writer, one has terrible superstitions. Oh, yes. And I feel it just because it's very early stages looking into it. And I feel if I say it, it won't happen. But it is a woman. Okay. And that's unusual because I didn't set out particularly to write about women. I just wanted to write about people. <laughs> um, but again, a woman with a very sadly complex life in relation to her private life and her public life. As interestingly, the one you're writing about, Jackie Nassis, maybe, maybe she did it better than some. Do you think? <clears throat> ah, that is the million-dollar question. I, I do think so. Actually, yes, because she separated. It was because there was a schism, and there really was a public life that she didn't really interfere with and then a private life where she could be yes. herself. Yeah, I think yes. that's the way to do it, actually. I think you're right. I think you're right. And maybe in the 21st century, women are becoming a bit more practiced at it. Mm, I don't know. Um, and if you look at our celebrities, it seems to be going the other way, where everybody's blending the private in with the public. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, well, in that sense, we, we don't... We've, we've many of us, forgotten what the difference is. We don't know okay. it anymore, do we? No. We don't know it. I mean... That's partly why I'm rather pleased that you can't see me and no one can see me. That sounds awful. I don't mean that in a bad way. But I like the mystery of privacy. I love the mystery of privacy. Of course, I'm fascinated when I walk past someone on the street and they're screaming at someone on their mobile and I can hear everything about their private life. But another part of me is horrified. We've, we've become utterly permeable, have we not? Yeah. The, the, the boundaries between private and public are almost gone and many people think that's a good thing i think it's very sad i think it's boring <laughs> i think it's going to make it very difficult for biographers of the future especially because if you think about trying to write a biography 50 years from now about someone who's a celebrity now i just think that would be extremely difficult i think it would but don't you think there's a very interesting thought there which i know of course i'm watching that as well and thinking about that and thinking how interesting that is as you will know from reading people's diaries and journals and even mm -hmm. letters there's a great temptation as the part historian and biographer to believe to believe what someone says when they talk right. about themselves and i think very often that person themselves believes what they say but one of our jobs i think is to i mean for me that's hugely interpretation interpreting interpreting and i think there will be a place for biographers but we will just have to work even harder mm -hmm. at interpreting what people say and we all know someone will present i mean look at facebook right wow <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's a marvelous compendium of lives, mm -hmm. is it not? It in is. many, many people's cases. It's really cases. an autobiography, in a sense. Well, exactly, but it's but it's it's the worst and the best of uh, of autobiography in that we know that many of them are constructs. Mm -hmm. So exactly. I think our job incre increasingly will be to be, and I love that because I feel I'm a very interpretive biographer, mm -hmm. and so yeah, we should be sitting now looking at people's Facebook, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, lovely to talk to you and good luck with your book. Thank you very much. I've been talking today with Lisa Cheney about her new book, Chanel An Intimate Life. I'm Ola Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>